Good morning, good afternoon, and good night, wherever you're tuning in. We are Slava and Jonathan, bringing you the SideQuest Podcast, where we talk about character development, stories, and all things that are world-building. And we occasionally take side quests, because, frankly, that's how conversations work. Just as a reminder, this whole show is spoiler-heavy. So, sit back, tune in, and join us on this episode of SideQuest. Good morning, Slava. Jonathan, good morning. That breakfast you sent me a photo of looked pretty tasty. It was uh, steak and eggs. Uh, The steak came from a Greek place that my wife and I frequent. Uh, It's in our neighborhood. Really good Greek place. So she always gets the steak, sometimes the salmon. I always get their charbroiled chicken. And for once, we didn't finish the portions because they're small enough to finish in one sitting. But we didn't finish them, and so I turned them into a steak and eggs and chicken and eggs, hot peppers and potatoes breakfast. So that was fun, and it was good. Yeah, it looked like it looked like there was chicken too. There was charbroiled chicken, uh, a bunch of bell peppers that, that I added today, and then made eggs over easy, or I mean sunny side up, and there you go, leftover breakfast. Tasty treats. Yeah, what'd you do this I morning? I like it. Uh, ran to the grocery store and picked up some ingredients for flan. My girlfriend's making flan for my family who's driving over from another state. They're going to be driving all day with a couple toddlers and a teenager. And, well, it's, you know, trying to have something tasty for them once they arrive. Yeah, so. I forgot that that one's a teenager now. Time flies. Yeah, she's she's a teenager. She's gotten older, and she does all the things that teenagers do. So not necessarily they know wiser. So, <laughs> right, it's because they know everything. Right. So yeah, I know. man, when I when I met her, she was um, eight, I think. It had to be longer. We've known each other longer than that. I think she was five when I met. Yeah. Her. Ugh. Wow, time flies. I, yeah, five. No, well, well, yeah, when you met her, probably, but like, yeah, it's been time. Time flies. Time flies regardless. But yeah, did that this morning. I had a cleaning crew out to try to get the house ready for them yesterday. And let me tell you, I don't know why it's hard, but for some reason, it's hard to clean a house for some people. I did a, an inspection after they left because I was on meetings and stuff, and they did it while I was in, in meetings. And there's just things that were not cleaned that were literally on the list, like the shower. We paid extra for for the windows and then there were still cobwebs in the windows and it's like oh. come on man like what are you what did you do because i can't sit here and baby you like i just expect that you're gonna do the job that i've paid you for and it wasn't cheap because we went through one of those cleaning services right and it's just like obnoxious nothing enrages me more than when customer service providers what seems like willful apathy just do crap work without shame. Just just apathetic, willful stupidity. It enrages it enrages me. You and me both. Can I tell you can I, can I make it worse? Yes. Let me make it worse. Okay. Please do. So they brought three people for, for six hours of work. And the thing is I can clean the house by myself in six hours or less. To a very good standard. By myself. So I'm thinking, okay, cool, three people, you know. Great, no problem. 
you know, do my meetings, go around, look around, and just, like, find hair around still, find trash cans that leave dirt in them, cobwebs on windows, and I'm just like, this is what it was like before I had you come clean my house that I paid for. So, I'm not sure what I paid for. Toilets? Oh, man, this one really is a kicker. The toilets. The toilets looked clean, and then upon minor attention. So, like, at a glance, it's like, oh, it's clean, cool. But they didn't smell clean. You know how once you clean something, it's got like a, oh, hey, it smells like bleach or whatever. Like My wife just cleaned the toilet in our uh, in the, the powder room. Yep, I, I could smell that it was clean when I went in there to wash my hands. It just baffles me. And I've been a janitor before. Growing up, we had to clean the house once a week at least. And so I was venting about this to my girlfriend yesterday. And I was like, I don't believe, I refuse to believe that my cleaning is so much higher than other people's that I'm being outrageous. I don't think that I'm that great of a cleaner. I'm I'm above average because I want to live in a clean house, but I don't I like I don't believe the hype that maybe I'm just so much better at cleaning. My sister-in-law, younger younger sister-in-law, she's got two toddlers. Her house is immaculate for having two toddlers. Does that mean that it actually is immaculate and you can eat off the floor? No, I wouldn't do that. But like for having two toddlers, it's very clean. And it's like, come on. I grew up poor. And I remember the food pantry or the donation uh, outlet, whatever it was, for clothes or going to the, the secondhand store and buying clothes. And I remember my mom, she would pick out clean, good things from the, the donation box. It wasn't just, all right, well, we're poor, so we're going to live in our own filth now. Yeah. Oh, man. It's, anyway. It's, it baffles me that there are... Well, it's two things. You don't have to clean houses, right? You could do a different job. But, like, whatever job you're going to do, do it well. Like, take pride in your work. You know, I, th- I think that that goes without saying that it's kind of lost on society now that that is um, a good thing to do. It is good to take pride in your work. And we don't anymore. But anyway... These people don't care about my cleaning situation. They might care about the bat that was in my house two days ago. Or Another bat. Week. Another bat. You. So now you can just refer to me as Batman because, <laughs> because I live in a bat cave. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's ridiculous. So week was good overall besides a bat that tormented me. Well, that's not true. I also had a chipmunk. I'm a Disney princess. That's what I am. There's a chipmunk that was trapped in my egress window as well. I thought it was another bat days after. And then I saw this little creature trying to get out. And I've spent four days trying to create a contraption that would help it climb out. But it was too stupid to figure out how to climb out. And I left food and water down there for it too. And it didn't eat it. (laughs) It It's like, you know, I didn't leave leave, like steak or anything, but I left some cashews and some pretzels and a cracker and I think piece of a cookie because I was like, I don't know what it eats, but I'm sure it'll eat one of these things. <laughs> anyway, I'm a Disney princess and this is my story. But a Disney princess in a bizarre world because it's not like these creatures yeah. come to you and sing and bring you good news of your prince. They torment you. <laughs> yeah, Prince Paul of Arrakis. Yes. That's nice my segue. Trying to. <laughs> <laughs> so welcome to SideQuest, everybody, where we're covering Dune by Frank Herbert. 
which I'm excited Man, about. What a great book. Dude. Such a um, good book. Well, before we get into it, you want to give us a brief plot summary of Dune? Sure. Yeah, this is the first 12 chapters. It starts off with, and we talked about this a little bit uh, later in the episode, but it starts off with Paul and Jessica and the Reverend Mother, and we get introduced to the magic system of the world. And I call it the magic system because I don't know what else to call it, because it's this this mystery and mysterium that specific people have, but not everyone has. And we also learn slowly after that that Paul is born to one of these magic people, Jessica, who's part of the Bene Gesserit, who is this... We don't really know a whole lot at this point about what they are outside of the fact that they have powers of some kind. Right after the first chapter, we dive into meeting the nemesis. Who are we going up against? Who's who's going to be the antagonist of this story and driving part of the drama here? And we see this building tension between the houses and the invisible hand that is the emperor and the imperium making these houses do different things. So House Atreides, which is our uh, our protagonist, Paul, they are being brought into the planet Arrakis to take over for some undefined reason. Like, there's hints at reasons, but it's it's like, well, the, the Emperor said so, but that's not, really a, that's not really a reason. And then the Harkonnens also have an understanding that, like, they're going to set a trap for the Duke. And later in the episode, we, we do a brief discussion on Dukes and Barons, and we don't meet the father until episodes, or the father, yeah, the father, the Duke, Leto, until chapter six. I was going to say episode for some reason. We, we don't meet him until episode six. Um, we don't meet Leto until chapter six, but between chapters one and five, we see a rising understanding of who this person is from outside characters, which adds some beautiful tension. After that, we get a quick additional glimpse at the inner workings of this plot and plan that the Harkonnens are preparing for using to take down House Atreides. And then we're over on Arrakis. And we meet some new characters like Duncan, who is one of the leading military folks who Paul had a an affinity toward because he was originally his trainer, but he was sent off to Arrakis beforehand to kind of clear the way to make sure that they have a, a safe arrival. And once they're on Arrakis, there's a an attempt on Paul's life with this assassin weapon that can only be used in short range. And so they know that someone in the area has been stationed there to try to take him out. And that puts everyone in a frenzy where it's basically the first chess move. Uh, the first uh, uh, attacking, abrasive, uh, aggressive chess move in this war that's been brewing. So that'll be interesting to find out what takes place as a response from the Duke to House Harkonnen, because it seems like right now he's trying to just get his roots settled in the planet Arrakis, on the planet Arrakis, and make sure that he can try and pull in the Fremen who he's hoping to ally with to make sure that he can defend himself against the 
incoming and the impending doom that House Harkonnen is going to bring upon him. What we don't know, though, is how the Duke knows that. Yeah. But I think that that's a pretty good summary. I'm sure that I've missed things. No, that's a good summary. And we end on we end on in chapter 12. Like you say, we meet Leto in 6. Chapter 12, it's post-assassination attempt. The son is brought into kind of the the big boy's table and the leading men of Leto's army and his office, for lack of a better term, are discussing the next steps. And what we end with is Paul kind of realizing in that vein of the terrible fate that we'll, we'll touch upon a little bit later too, but he realizing that, wow, his family, his dad, and by extension him, are in a world of shit, as they say, right? Like they're in something deep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I want to ask you a quick question about like the beginning of the book because it starts out pretty intense, right? You get thrown into a pretty intense situation. And so this this Reverend Mother is going to test Paul because she speculates that he is the Kwisat Haderach. And she tests him with a box called the Gomjabar. So the test here, well, before I say what the test is, the Bene Gesserits are apparently able to influence births, like human versus female, like who is born. They carefully can carefully control human human breeding to the degree that they almost uh, advance humans' genetics, right? Because with the training they get after they are born, the Bene Gesserits, the training they get give them superior powers over regular folks, right? So they are able to sift people and sift avenues of the past, as you know, as it's, it's mentioned. And but they only can see feminine avenues. That's why they they want more female babies. They hope to breed the Kwisat Haderach as the one who can be many places at once and who can see into both feminine and masculine pasts. So far, all the men who have tried this test have failed, but here we have Paul, right, who has not failed. So, two two part question: What do you think about all that? And what the hell is a Gomjabar? It makes you feel pain, and it tests whether you're an animal or a human, but also if you have the right human stock. So give me two minutes on what the hell Jonathan thinks about that. Uh, those are some big questions. I'll return the favor later this episode when I berate you with a bunch of questions. There you go. Uh, so the Gomjabar, I picture it as, and 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 this is not, a literal interpretation. It's more of like how my mind works. I kind of picture it like a black hole that you have to put your hand in. And because it's this absolute dark, this, this pitch black mm-hmm. space, and you can't see what's going on inside there. But it's not a black hole in and of itself where it's just like gravity. It's, you know, part black hole, part sorting hat from Harry Potter where it like can read intentions and essences and, and help the, I want to say orchestrator, but that's not right. The um, accuser is not right either. Help the person instituting the test understand whether or not the person is true. Because there's a lot of talk of truth in the book so far. So I think it's interesting that 
the Reverend Mother has to threaten to keep the person there. I think that that's interesting because I feel like it means that the box is flawed. The blocks can't the box can't just in and of itself give you the direct answer. It requires additional outside influence to make sure that it can do its job. Now, what I also don't know is if the time spent in the box is a required amount of time because the Reverend Mother does make a mention that she put him through more pressure than she's put others through. So it seems to me that there is not a minimum amount of time, but it's like cooking. It's like, oh, well, you know when it's medium rare when you've been cooking for 10 years. You know, you don't have to put a thermometer in it or a thermostat. No, thermometer in it mm-hmm. uh, to figure it out afterward. So that's that's what I think about the Gomja Bar. Um, would I buy one? Probably not. Uh, seems a little... It's not my type of black magic, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I do know what you mean. You know, I found it interesting... The box itself, I am. I was captivated. I really want to know what's inside it, like the magic, to use your words, the magic system of the box, because there's something supernatural about it. It has to be, because even in this right. world where things seem pretty, pretty straightforward, yes, humans have evolved to the point where these Benny Gesserits can, you know, sift through people and sift through time. And that is explained and revealed later what all that means in later chapters. So there's human inv- evolution, human potential. We, you know, we'll touch on that briefly later as th- one of the themes. But that box just fascinated me. I think like with you and in some of our episodes, you said you just want to know more, you want to know more, you want to know more. I don't know if it's ever explained in the other parts of the book or in other books by Herbert, but this, this is something that stands out. I won't rest until I know it's in the box. I don't believe that, but I like the I like the chutzpah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So one other thing I wanted to touch upon that's for me. This is me being selfish. That's uh, that stood out because I was thinking about this as I was listening to this portion, this chapter eight, and then we'll we'll get into some of the more general themes and discussion of the book. But one thing that stood out to me is Doctor Yui, and his betrayal of the house of Atreides. And when in chapter eight, Jessica and Dr. Yui are talking about the date palms and how much water they use and water is very precious on Dune. She, because she can sift through people, she notices that something is off about Yui and she can't tell that it's him who's going to betray uh, betray the house because later on she also learns in chapter 10 or 11 she gets a note from the previous owner of the house the lady of the house that yep. somebody's betraying yep. her betraying the, whole, the the family somebody's betraying the family and she can't figure out that it's Huey because he hides it well because he was married to a Bene Gesserit so he, he apparently it rubs off but my my question is this <laughs> I found it a little hard to hate Dr. Huey and I, that surprised me because normally, if you're a sniveling rat bastard, you should be, yeah. you know, swimming with the fishes with the cement shoes. But I kind of find <laughs> found it hard. I'm like, yeah, they kidnapped his wife. What would I do? Somebody kidnapped my wife, but the wife is actually dead, and I know that because now, you know, because I'm a, I'm somebody who knows that as I'm reading this for the second time. 
at least this portion for the second time because I've never finished the book except for this podcast. I'm thinking like, you know what? I kind of understand Dr. Yui. And that surprises me and myself because normally I'd be like, well, hang in from the first tree you find. He's a traitorous piece of crap. What are your thoughts on it? Or have you even, or do you even think about that kind of stuff when you read the book? I, I think it's entirely plausible. And, and that's why he's, because he's even conflicted. He doesn't even like him, right? Like, yeah. So it's not like he believes 100% about betraying House Atreides and the Duke and Paul. He's like, I got pulled into this. I'm not thrilled. They took his wife. And it's tough because I did think about that. And I was like, well, when you're put in a position like that, there's really no option where you're going to get your wife back. Like, that's not, like, I don't, I don't think that that's ever the case when when someone is putting you so on the spot with pressure where they're taking someone you love and making them the 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 pawn to force you to do something beyond your will that person's not surviving like they don't have any incentive to give them back right because now there's two witnesses right and it almost feels like you're better off trying to get them killed as quickly as possible because you know you're not going to see him again. Well, in the same chapter, Jessica says, in response to one of the one of the men's, uh, the generals or somebody commander's efforts to make everything safe and you know p- preparing them, preparing them for arrival, she says that death and deceit are our only hopes. Which also is like you know it plays into Yui, although th- that's not said to Doctor Yui, but it plays into his his. Uh, this thing that he's in, and every, the family, what the family is uh, facing, the house over Trades is facing. It'd be very difficult. Yeah, I put myself in in the situation where right, somebody kidnaps my wife, and yeah, I probably I would want to think at least that I'm I'd let her die and then do the honorable thing until later, right? But I don't know. <laughs> I don't. That's what I want to do, and I think I would do, but. This scene, it depends. It depends, all right. Yeah, this scene was kind of like... It depends on how much you believe the person who's threatening your loved one is going to follow through and give you whatever you've asked for. Because even House Harkonnen, we see in Chapter 2, where his uh, Mito, Mitar, what is the name of the servants? Well, his name is Piter de Vries. He is a Mantat. 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 Yeah. Okay. So Mentat was the word that I was thinking of, but I think I was meshing it with Pytar. But anyway, so we see it in the slaves where Mentat is talking too much and he's like, you promised me, Jessica, you promised me, Jessica. And then he's like, are you going to kill me? You can't kill me. I've got things to offer you still. But even he knows that the Harkonnen is not meant to be messed with and that at any turn when something doesn't go his, uh, when he's losing control, basically, he'll kill it. So, and yeah. that's why I think it's like you're you're you have better odds with your loyalty in this scenario where it's like, but the thing is, it's tough. It's like it doesn't saying it is easier than doing it. Like if you're if your loved one is is at risk, then you have to make a decision. You're either going to follow through and hope that they give you your spouse back, or you have to choose betrayal of the person who's harboring the person you love and commit to making sure that that happens. And both of them are 
difficult places to be in. So, yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get more into the book right now, Jonathan. I think one of the things that we both enjoyed about the book is Frank Herbert's ability to describe situations and things, people even, right? One of the notes you sent me was, hey, this guy really describes faces well, which automatically prompted in me, yeah, he does that, but he also describes tension well. That's the thing that I was focused on. That's the thing that jumped out at me is as soon as the book starts, you have great tension building. You see that when Paul is sleeping, pretending to sleep, and his mom is watching him with the Reverend Mother and him over here in their conversations, you sense from the beginning that something is happening. Herbert gives the sense of tension of everybody involved in the House of Atreides and even outside of the House of Atreides. So I love that. First-time reader, second-time reader, tenth-time reader, it still builds tension well. It does. I, I want to back up a second because I know we're excited to talk about the book, but can you give us a quick rundown about the author and then his claim to fame? Yeah, uh, for sure. So this book, Dune, written by Frank Herbert, He's best known for this book and its five sequels. Although, if you ask the critics, this book stands out by itself. And even though true fans like the five sequels, according to the critics, at least in the, in the, in the stuff I found, that's what sets him apart as a great science fiction writer. He wrote short stories. He worked for a newspaper. He was a photographer, a book reviewer. He was even an ecological consultant and lecturer. And the ecology and the environment is a big thing for him. So he was quoted somewhere in 1973. He was quoted as saying that he started reading science fiction about 10 years before he began writing the genre. So this book is what he's known for more than anything. 10 years is not a long time. No. To like read sci-fi and then go, you know, I can, I can write this. Or, right. or even just be inspired for it. Yep, yep. So that's basically Frank Herbert in a nutshell. He decided to write a book, wrote it, it took off. It is the the world's best-selling science fiction series, according to uh, Wikipedia. And it's the, what's the word I'm looking for? The qu- quintessential, quintessential? Quintessential. It is the quintessential science fiction book. If you ask anybody, oh, name me a science fiction book, They'll say probably Dune, even if they know very little about science fiction. Yeah, that's fair. August of 1965 is when it was published. I feel like there was a lot of great books that came out in the 50s, 60s, and 70s that we just think of as more recent. This is one of them. Like, yep. Yeah. When I picked it up back in the 90s and skimmed through it, honestly, it gave me the impression, but I was a kid, but it gave me the impression that like, oh, this was probably written 10 years ago or something. Not 30 at that time, right? Right. But now it's 60 right. years old, almost 67, 68, something like that. Anyway, it's an older book. It's written in the decades where a lot of good, a lot of good science fiction books came out and other genres too. Yeah. So that's Frank Herbert. And his claim to fame. And how many books are in the Dune series? Five. Five. And... 
I can... So it's Dune, Dune Messiah, Children of Dune, God Emperor of Dune, Heretics of Dune. Crazy Dogs of Dune. Mm-hmm. And Chapter I House. Read, I haven't read that one. No, no. It's, it's one of his last... No, didn't didn't take off as fast as the others. Uh, and uh, crazy words. It's unpublished, too, uh, actually. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then Chapter House, colon Dune. It's called the Dune Saga. And, again, from my little internet research adventures, it supposedly covers 34,000 years. So that's kind of cool. The world building is immense. You said there's six books, but I thought that there was like... Oh, five books. Sure. Uh, yeah, there's the trilogy there and then was... the two additional books. Yeah, but I thought that there was like 20 books or something like that. Maybe he's written 20 books? But all I found, and I did some cursory research because of the, the intro... Brian uh, Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson wrote Del Rey House Atreides... Delray oh, his House, son? Harkonnen. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, that's what I, uh, my question was more about, like, how many books are in the entire world. The Butlerian Jihad is book 10. Yeah. I think that there's a lot more books in this world than just six. I think he wrote six, right? Mm-hmm. But book 14 is Sandworms of Dune, and book 15 is Paul of Dune. There's more. There's a Sisterhood of Dune. I don't know if these are canon by any means. I would think that they were because the son wrote them, but we can dive into that at a different time. Just curious. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I think for Herbert, because he used this saga, the, the th- trilogy, trilogy and the other books, he used it to kind of, as all authors do, I suppose, um, especially in speculative fiction. And this kind of has an air of speculative fiction. So I'm going to... I'm going to call it that. Again, it involves philosophy, religion, psychology, politics, for him specifically, environmentalism, and e- ecology specifically under uh, environmentalism. And ecology is just the relationships between organisms and things in a, in a system, in an ecosystem. And whatever comes afterwards, you know, it might be canon in some sense, but I think his son's his son and whoever else was the co-author of the other books, they might be exploring other things as a jump on, jumping off of the, the father's uh, work. But who knows? Yeah, that's fair. It's very possible. Uh, so Dune is written in third-person omniscient. How do you feel about that storytelling technique and narration, Slava? Oh, I like it. I like it. I am agnostic when it comes to the point of views. If a point of view... Is first person, but it's done really well and it serves the story. Hey, great! I guess if I gun to my head, if I had to choose which one I like better, I like this. I like third person omniscient because then you get all the point of views and you get inside all the characters' heads, and the world is built out and is more interesting when you get into all the characters' heads. Yeah, I uh, I actually prefer third person limited. Just because I like the mystery of not knowing everything. That said, I I also enjoy third-person omniscient where you do kind of get to know everything because, and I want to dive into this next, so I guess I'll just segue into it, is like with one of the reasons that this book is so prevalent in 
science fiction and noted as a such a great book is in chapters one and two, we learn a lot about the world without detail, right? Mm-hmm. So chapter one, we see Paul, his mother, and the Reverend Mother having an interaction, right? So in chapter one, we learn about the magic of the world, but without really knowing about the magic at all. We just know that it exists, and like we don't even know this is a space trilogy yet, you know, or space a space book. We just know it's a growing drama, and we learn secrets. We learn a little bit about the father, the duke, and we learn a little bit about what's going on. And then in chapter two, we jump over to the Harkonnens, which are the arch nemesis of House Atreides, and we learn a little bit more about them because we have the omniscient part. But each chapter takes time to build toward this looming threat, this tension that you were talking about, right? And the thing is, the Duke doesn't even come in until chapter 6. And I think that it's more powerful with the fact that he didn't come in until chapter 6 because he was talked about in different chapters. Not in every chapter, but like certainly a lot of chapters. That honestly brings him more weight and more power as a character, in my opinion, because we've spent the time learning about who he is from other people. And that juxtaposition is one of the ways that you create and build tension between characters. If I spend six chapters describing a monster that you've never seen, but it's described from children, and it's described from the men, and it's described from the old women in town, and then I describe it eating someone it's going to hold more power and weight to it because I've just introduced it and I've built up toward it. And so that is one of the things that I think Herbert did really well with introducing the Duke. Absolutely. I think that's a fascinating, that's a fantastic way of saying it. The buildup to the reveal of, you know, in your example, the monster, but in this case, Leto, the Duke, because you have all this stuff going on, the Reverend Mother Gaius, Helen Mohayim, she comes in right away. And there's this test, the gum jabbar, that has to be performed on Paul to make sure that he's not an animal and that he's human because humans, only humans can withstand extreme suffering. And he needs to be tested because of his terrible fate. So there's like, holy cow, there's a lot just in those, you know, first few paragraphs. And we have this buildup at the same time to the Duke. So, that's what I'm like sitting there on a bus listening to this and just find myself encapsulated, entombed in this world, right? Like mm, I can't work. look away. So, yes, Herbert does a fantastic job of setting up the Duke's reveal. Because even when we meet meet him, yes, he's not some terrible monster or even a great man or anything. Um, when we first meet him, we just meet the Duke. But he's already more powerful as a character, like you said, if it was just like, and then the Duke came in, and it's Paul's dad, and they're on Arrakis, and they're talking about stuff. Like, that wouldn't be as powerful. Did yeah. you Do you know the, uh, the hierarchy of royalty, I guess I'd call it, or the, the peerage, I think is what it's called in England? No, because uh, if you asked me any detailed question, it would be, I'd, I'd fail the trivia quiz. 
But I understand, okay, you so, know, royal hierarchy. That it exists. All exactly, right, cool. yes. One thing, and I don't know if this is exactly true, maybe you can look it up while I'm talking about it, is, so, the Duke holds a certain station, but his nemesis is a baron. Now, Dukes are for, if this is measured, if, if, if Dune is measured by the same peerage as England has, and I think that it is, if you can look that up, um, it goes the king, and then princes, and then dukes. So dukes are third from the throne, basically. Dukes and duchesses. Then you have Marquess, and, oh man, Marchioness. Then you have counts and earls and countesses. And then you have viscounts, or viscounts, if you want to pronounce it that way, and viscountesses. And then at the bottom of the barrel, you have barons and baronesses. And the thing is, his arch nemesis is a baron, which is four marks away from his station. Three if you're only counting the ones that are are different. But it's interesting to me that a baron would hold so much authority in the world building that he's been like planning and prepping for taking over House Atreides where he's, you know, laying this trap, this this elaborate trap against the Duke. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Because the religious and some cultural aspects of the world of Dune is pulled from Islamic sources, Islamic influences by Herbert. Really? So, yeah. So even some pronunciation of the words, they're from, from Arabic. But... To answer your question about the monarchy, I'm not finding anything here on Google that could, that's anything. Then it's possible that the, the normal hierarchy is irrelevant and it could just go barons and dukes below the emperor. Who knows? It could be, yeah. Yeah, so the House of Atreides is a small one. we gotta, we got to remember that. And it's one of the smallest of all the houses, but it's the most popular, if not the most influential. That's because of Leto. And Baron, the Baron's house, uh, the house of Harkonnen, we, we're we not sure, at least not in the beginning of the book, why the Baron is in charge of the house and not, nobody else. Not a Duke of Har- Harkonnen. Um, but it could be that it's irrelevant, right? It's just Dukes and Barons in this world. So. Yeah. It's, uh, it's something we'll have to look up and bring up in, in another another episode because i'm i'm curious about that i do know that dukes are a higher rank and it would it would be interesting if they weren't in this the same peerage so yeah anyway i'm going to do a topic change do you feel the epigraphs are helpful in the reading of the book and for those who don't know an epigraph is like a short quote that's uh, at the beginning of a piece of writing i don't know if i would describe it as helpful they kind of incite a little bit of curiosity. They're interesting, I suppose. They're they're there for a reason. What what, what do you find them unhelpful or you find well, them distracting? Well, it, it no, no, no. I I like them. Sanderson uses them as well. So when we were reading this book this week, I was thinking, you know, I don't know an earlier book that uses these, and I wouldn't consider myself well read. But if you ask some people in my life, they tell you that I read too much. So I don't know where I fall on the on the 
on the spectrum. But I was doing some research on the epigraphs because I thought, you know, I think Dune might be one of the first books to introduce that to us. And someone in my research noted that Dune was not the first book to use epigraphs, but it was actually George MacDonald's Fan Tastes in 1858. That's quite a ways before. But another thing is that epigraphs existed before books as well. Greek and Roman plays would have an epigraph. And an epigraph doesn't have to give you questions about what's about to to come. It can also be a setup of what you're about to see, which is why it was used in a lot of theater things to help set the stage of the world that you're about to step into or the story that you're about to step into. When you sent me those notes, I was surprised that it was that early on. And I, I don't think I should have been. Because just like you said, Greek plays had him, and I read Greek plays in school, so I don't know why I forgot about him. But it would be interesting to get to take a look at Fanta- Fan- Fantasties. What, is it, what, how is it, what did you call it? It might be Fantasties. It, it, the way that it read was Fantastes, but I, you know, I, I'm not opposed to saying that I've missed. Uh, okay, Fantastes sounds more... No, Fantasties is probably correct. Like, okay, why don't you Fantasties? Then it's uh, it's accessible on Gutenberg.org. There's an organization called Gutenberg.org that is digitizing books, and a lot of them are out of print and old and weird and all sorts of uh, fun rabbit trails. Okay, so we're both wrong. I looked it up. <laughs> Apparently, it's spelled Fantastes. F, uh, sorry, P H A N T A S T E S. It's pronounced fantasies. That okay. is that is what it says. It's pronounced fantasies. It must be an older English word. Yeah, well, eighteen fifty eight. But well, eighteen fifty eight. Okay, I guess. Maybe maybe he was using an old yeah. English word that was old in eighteen fifty eight. Yeah. Yeah. Hard yeah. to say. Yeah. I, I I learned a new thing today. One of the one of the things that I have a question about with the epigraphs is Princess Irulan. I don't know if you've done any looking into who she is, but I, and the thing is I read this book before and I, I can't remember, but I do like that we get some outsider's perspective, or at least it feels like she's an outsider because she is making annotations about the family and things that have happened and it gives us an interesting setup in the chapters. She gives her commentary, and then the chapter unfolds before us with something seemingly similar or relevant to the the quoted text. Yeah, I haven't done any research on her within the storyline of Dune, like all the storylines. She's established as the eldest daughter of the 81st Emperor Shaddam IV and a Bene Gesserit named Aniral. I I hope I'm pronouncing that huh. right. So and has four younger sisters and brothers, but her writings are future writings that are excerpts in this book that we're reading, and that's all. Right. So that's all I know. Yeah. So the, interesting. Okay. So she's that would make sense though. She's writing about the from the future about the present that we're reading, which is her past. Yes. That's how I understand it. Yeah, that that sounds difficult as a as an author. 
Yes. Maybe it's not, though. But it, Not to if me, you're Frank Herbert. Difficult. Right, right. So be it. What do you think about Paul's terrible purpose that he keeps mentioning? Oh, I like it. I, I, I like the setup for it. And kind of knowing where the story goes and what he does, we understand his terrible purpose. It's like the fate before him, what he's destined to become and to do for his people, even the loss of his house, the loss of his father, spoiler alert, uh, the betrayal of his house by Dr. Yui, having to traverse the desert with his mom, him and the Fremen, and everything he has to do as a young person to fulfill his destiny of revolutionizing Dune, right? That is... A great setup, and he'll have to fight and and suffer. So it sets up for a great story. The when those words come up, that phrase comes up so early on. I think Herbert did a fantastic mm-hmm. job with it. I like it, and he keeps using it for foreshadowing of some kind. Yeah, like it's not in every chapter, but it's it pops up here and there, and I think it's just enough and not too much. Yeah, that dude, you hit the nail on the head. The because we, when we've talked about other writers that we've liked, I've used the word pace numerous times because how those story mm-hmm. is paced here, pace is fine, but I think a better, a better term, a better lens to look at it through is exactly what you said. Herbert gives you just enough in his descriptions of faces and his descriptions of the tension, everything is just placed nicely, it's like it's arranged well. It's a proper cacophony. I think I'm using that word correctly. Well, cacophony is something that's unpleasant of the years. All right. Maybe I'm not using that word correctly. So be it. Well, whatever the opposite of cacophony is, which is maybe like a pleasant noise, it's a, that, that is arranged well. It's orchestrated well. It's a nice orchestrated piece of writing. <laughs> if we can just right. stretch analogies. I thought a cacophony, mm-hmm. I thought a cacophony was just a... a like a lot of competing uh, voices, it could be that too. I mean, it is that too. But the way I understand it, a cacophony is a lot of things happening, m- music or words or what are noises. But it's also unpleasant. It's not that they're like, oh wow, the birds are yeah, singing. The- it says it's a harsh discordant, a harsh discordant mixture of sounds. So it's like, well, no, I'm not using that word correctly, and I've learned two things today. What's that? What was the first one? Uh. You learned I guess one I thing today. Learned it. <laughs> I learned one thing today. <laughs> Excellent. Well, it's better than none, right? You could have had the. <laughs> we could have had this conversation, and you learned nothing. No, I learned something else too. I don't know what it is. I did. I swear, I learned it. Go back and listen to the episode, and 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 let me know what I learned. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. Are there any themes that you're seeing come out as we're winding the episode down here? The themes that I see coming out right away is fate versus free will, human potential, and suffering. I base that on just some of the research I've done about the themes. So this is not just me pulling stuff out of my my, my rear end or me coming up with it. But I'm agreeing with these literary critics or uh, analysis, uh, analysts. But without reading anything, a reader of any kind and a thinking person, you should be able to at least pull out fate versus free will. So that, I see, is a theme because right off the bat, Paul dreams uh, hint a tension between fate and free will 
in his sleep. He has the ability to see the future, right? And he eventually finds himself in the future that he, he, he dreams about. So his ability to envision the future, I guess, suggests he has always been fated to be there, or one could argue. The Bene Gesserit are concerned about the future, specifically how the human race is part of it, right? So free will, suffering, or fate versus free will, suffering, and human potential, right? This is way into the future. This is like post-technology as we know it. But these people, let's say 10,000 years in the future, wherever Herbert envisioned it, they have technology in some ways that surpasses ours. But in other ways, you know, they don't have cell phones or vidcons. Or whatever, right? Yeah. And the, the how humans have evolved in the universe and what they need to do to survive in the harsh universe that they find themselves or the harsh world of Dune. To me, really, that's human potential. And I base that off on what science fiction and speculative fiction deals with all the time. So this is not, like, extraordinary in any sense, like, meaning it's not out of character for a science fiction writer to deal with these themes. But that's what I see coming out in the first few chapters. I think there's a lot here, right? So I don't think there is. There is a lot here. And it's nice because we're going to have another six episodes to discuss this because the final episode, as we've been doing when we can find folks who've read the book, is we're going to have a couple guests on. A new guest and a familiar guest, which I'm looking forward to. I think that's a great introduction for the first 12 chapters, unless we've missed something, Slava. I think we covered the intro pretty well, and in episode two, three, and four of this book, we can start to unpack things and maybe uh, drag it out a little bit longer. The, our conversation, but for an intro, I think it's, I think it's just fine. All right. Well, uh, as we do, we're going to land this plane kind of abruptly, and we want you to subscribe, comment, and share the episode. Have you read Dune? Did you enjoy it? Is it the worst book ever written? Taking one out of my playbook. What did you think? What are your thoughts on Dune here? Slav, any, any last words for the good people? Do all that and the place where you can leave us comments right now and book suggestions. Please leave book suggestions for us. We want to cover something that you guys are interested in. You can do it on Spotify because each episode allows you to comment on what did you think about this episode and some of those questions I'm able to edit as the guy who behind the curtain. So if you go to those questions, says, hey, what'd you think about the episode? Hey, also suggest us some other books. You'll see it all on Spotify. Click there, leave us suggestions. Another place you can go to is Instagram. It's on the description notes. Go to Instagram, show us some love in the comments. Tell us how much you love or hate Dune or anything else we've covered and give us suggestions there as well. But other than that, goodbye, good people. Goodbye.